Welcome to another adult Bible study guide exploring the book of Job. Written by Clifford Goldstein. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration 8. Innocent Blood. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, the English Standard Version. Algerian-born writer Albert Camus struggled with the question of human suffering. In his book, The Plague, he used the plague as a metaphor for the ills that bring pain and suffering upon humanity. He depicted a scene in which a little boy, afflicted with the pestilence, dies a horrific death. Afterward, a priest, who had been a witness to the tragedy, said to a doctor who had been there, too, quote, That sort of thing is revolting, because it passes our human understanding. But perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. The doctor, enraged, snapped back, No, father, I have a very different idea of love. And until my dying day, I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. That quotation is from Albert Camus' book, The Plague, on page 218, published in New York by First Vintage, International Edition, in 1991. This scene reflects what we have seen in Job pat and lame answers to what doesn't have a simple solution. Job knew, as did the doctor here, that the answers given didn't fit the reality at hand. That's the challenge. How do we find answers that make sense of what so often seems without sense? In this exploration, we will continue the pursuit. Job's protest. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had a point. God does punish evil. Unfortunately, that point didn't apply in Job's situation. Job's suffering was not a case of retributive punishment. God was not punishing him for his sins, as he would do with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Nor was Job reaping what he had sown, as can so often be the case. No, Job was a righteous man. God himself says so. Job chapter 1 and verse 8. And so Job not only didn't deserve what had happened to him, he knew that he didn't deserve it. That's what made his complaints so hard and bitter. Listen to Job chapter 10. What is he saying to God, and why does it make so much sense, considering his circumstances? I am disgusted with my life and loathe it. I will give free expression to my complaint. 
I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, Do not condemn me and declare me guilty. Show me why you contend and argue and struggle with me. Does it indeed seem right to you to oppress, to despise and reject the work of your hands, and to look with favor on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? Are your years as man's years, that you seek my guilt and search for my sin? Although you know that I am not guilty or wicked, yet there is no one who can rescue me from your hand. Your hands have formed and made me altogether. Would you turn around and destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay. So will you turn me into dust again? Have you not poured me out like milk and curdled me like cheese? You have clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and loving kindness and your providence, divine care and supervision has preserved my spirit. Yet these present evils you have hidden in your heart since my creation. I know that this was within you, in your purpose and thought. If I sin, then you would take note and observe me, and you would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me, for judgment comes. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head, for I am sated and filled with disgrace and the sight of my misery. Should I lift my head up, you would hunt me like a lion, and again you would show your marvelous power against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your indignation and anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me, attacking me time after time. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not existed. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Would he not let my few days alone withdraw from me, that I may have a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and the deep shadow of death, the sunless land of utter gloom as darkness itself, the land of the shadow of death, without order, and where it shines as thick darkness. At times of great tragedy, have not those who believe in God asked similar questions? Why, Lord, did you bother to create me at all? Or, why are you doing this to me? Or, would it not have been better that I had never been born than to have been created and face this? Again, what makes it all harder for Job to comprehend is that he knew that he was faithful to God. He cried out to him, Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Job chapter 10 and verse 7, the New King James Version. There's a difficult irony here. In contrast to what his friend said, Job was not suffering because of his sin. The book itself teaches the opposite. 
Job was suffering here precisely because he was so faithful. The first two chapters of the book make that point. Job had no way of knowing that this was the cause, and even if he did, it probably would have made his bitterness and frustration worse. However unique Job's situation, it's also universal in that it is dealing with the universal question of suffering, especially when the suffering seems so greatly out of proportion to whatever evil someone might have done. It's one thing to go over the speed limit and get a speeding ticket. It's another to do the same thing to kill someone in the process. What can you say to someone who believes that he or she is suffering unjustly? Innocent Blood We often hear the question of innocent suffering. The Bible even uses the phrase, innocent blood, in these three different books of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 7. Their feet run to evil, and they rush to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of wickedness, of sin, of injustice, of wrongdoing. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 17. But your eyes and your heart are only intent on your own dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, on oppression and extortion and violence. And Joel chapter 3 and verse 19. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of their violence against the children of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. Innocent blood is used usually in the context of assault or even murder of people who didn't deserve what happened to them. If we use this understanding of innocent blood then, as we all know, our world is filled with many examples of it. On the other hand, the Bible does talk about the reality of human sinfulness and human corruption, which brings up a valid question about the meaning of innocent. If everyone has sinned, if everyone has violated God's law, then who is truly innocent? As someone once said, your birth certificate is proof of your guilt. Though theologians and Bible scholars for centuries have debated the exact nature of the human relationship to sin, the Bible is clear that sin has impacted all humanity. The idea of human sinfulness is not found only in the New Testament. On the contrary, the New Testament exploration of the theme expands on what was written in the Old Testament. What do the following five texts teach about the reality of sin. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and hand them over to the enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the enemy's land, whether far away or near. Psalms chapter 51 and verse 5. I was brought forth in a state of wickedness. 
in sin my mother conceived me, and from my beginning I too was sinful. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9. Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wickedness of us all, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, to fall on him instead of us. And Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. As it is written and forever remains written, there is none righteous, none that meets God's standard, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They habitually deceive with their tongues. The venom of asps is beneath their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the path of peace. There is no fear of God and his awesome power before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law of Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the excuses of every mouth may be silenced from protesting, and that all the world may be held accountable to God and subject to his judgment. For no person will be justified, freed of guilt and declared righteous in his sight, by trying to do the works of the law. For through the law we become conscious of sin, and the recognition of sin directs us toward repentance, but provides no remedy for sin. Besides the clear testimony of Scripture, anyone who has ever known the Lord personally, who has seen a glimpse of God's goodness and holiness, knows the reality of human sinfulness. In that sense, who among us is truly innocent? We're going to skip for now the whole question of babies and young children. On the other hand, that's not really the point. Job was a sinner. In that sense, he wasn't innocent any more than his own children weren't innocent. And yet, what had he done, or they done, to deserve the fate that befell them? Is this not, perhaps, the ultimate question for humanity in regard to suffering? Contrary to his friends, defenses of clay, as they are described in Job chapter 13 and verse 12, New King James Version, Job knew that what was happening to him was not something that he deserved. How does the experience of knowing God and His holiness, which makes our own sinfulness painful, help you see your need of the cross?
faiths. Listen to Job chapter 15, verses 14, 15, and 16. What truth is Eliphaz presenting to Job? What is man that he should be pure and clean? Or he who is born of a woman, that he should be righteous and just? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, angels. Indeed, the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less pure and clean is the one who is repulsive and corrupt, man, who drinks unrighteousness and injustice like water. Again, Eliphaz was speaking truth as did the others, this time in regard to the sinfulness of all humanity. Sin is a universal fact of life on earth. So is suffering. And as we also know, all human suffering ultimately results from sin. And there's no question that God can use suffering to teach us important lessons. God has always tried his people in the furnace of affliction. It is in the heat of the furnace that the dross is separated from the true gold of the Christian character. Ellen G. White, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129. There is, however, a deeper problem with suffering. What about the times we see no good come from it? What about the suffering of those who don't have the dross separated from the gold in their character because they are killed instantly? What about those who suffer, never knowing the true God or anything about Him? What about those whose sufferings only made them bitter, angry, and hateful toward God? We can't ignore these examples or try to put them in a simple formula. To do so would perhaps make us guilty of the same errors as Job's accusers. Also, what good arises from the fate of animals in a forest fire who are slowly burned alive in a horrible death? Or what about the thousands of people killed in a natural disaster? Or what about civilians in war? What possible lessons could they have learned or their families when their families were swept away with them? And one could reasonably ask questions, not just about Job's ten dead children, but about his servants who were killed with the edge of the sword, Job chapter 1 and verse 15, or those burned alive by the fire of God, Job chapter 1 and verse 16, or the other servants killed with the edge of the sword, Job chapter 1 and verse 17. Whatever lesson Job and his accusers might learn, and what defeat Satan will face through Job's faithfulness, the fate of these others certainly doesn't seem fair. The fact is, these things are not fair, are not just, and not right. We face similar challenges today. A six-year-old dies of cancer, and that's fair? A 20-year-old college girl is pulled from her car and sexually assaulted, and that's fair? A 35-year-old mother of three is killed in a car accident, and that's fair? What about the 19,000 Japanese killed in the 2011 earthquake? Were all 19,000 guilty of something that made this a just punishment? If not, then their deaths 
were not fair either. These are the hard questions. Sufficient for the day. Listen to the following verses and think about the immediate fate of those depicted in the texts. Then ask yourself the question How fair was life treating them? Job chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. While he was still speaking, another messenger also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head in mourning for the children, and he fell to the ground and worshipped God. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. Cain talked with Abel his brother about what God had said. And when they were alone working in the field, Cain attacked Abel his brother and killed him. Exodus chapter 12 verses 29 and 30. Now it happened at midnight that the Lord struck every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Verse 30. Pharaoh got up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry of heartache and sorrow in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 17. And the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among the servants of David fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 6. So they took Jeremiah and threw him into the cistern of Melchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they led Jeremiah down into the cistern with ropes. Now there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 10. He, Herod Antipas, sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 35 through 38. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured to death, refusing to accept release, offered on the condition of denying their faith, so that they would be resurrected to a better life. And others experienced the trial of mocking and scourging amid torture, 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were lured with tempting offers to renounce their faith. They were put to death by the sword. They went about wrapped in the skins of sheep and goats, utterly destitute, oppressed, cruelly treated, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and living in caves and holes in the ground. The Bible reflects a harsh fact about life in our fallen world. Evil and suffering are real. It's only a superficial reading of the Word of God, pulling a few texts out of the whole context, that could give anyone the idea that life here is fair and just and good, and that if only we remain faithful to God, suffering won't come. Certainly, faithfulness can reap great rewards now, but that doesn't mean it provides an absolute barrier to suffering and pain. Just ask Job. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gave a powerful homily on why we need to trust God and not to worry about what we will eat or drink or wear. And Jesus used examples from nature as object lessons on why we can trust in God's goodness to meet our needs. He then included these famous words, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. Did you notice the words sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof? Jesus wasn't denying the presence in our lives, even the daily presence of evil, from a Greek word that can mean badness, depravity, and malignity. If anything, he was doing the opposite. He was acknowledging the prevalence and presence of evil in our daily lives. How could he not? As the Lord, he knew more about the evil in the world. He knew more about the evil in the world than any of us ever could. And, no doubt, you know a lot about it already. Have you tasted a bit or maybe a lot? of just how unfair and bitter life can be? How does focusing on Jesus' acknowledgement of this evil's reality give you comfort and strength through it all? Things not seen. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 advises, Trust in and rely confidently on the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight or understanding. Though it is such a common text, what practical message does it have for you, especially in the context of what you have been exploring in the story of Job? Though the case of Job is extreme, it does reflect the sad reality of human suffering in our fallen world. 
We don't need the story of Job or even the other stories we can read in the Bible to see this reality. We see it all around us. Indeed, to some degree, you live it. Job chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 say, Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. So again, the question we struggle with is how do we account for suffering? The kind that seems to make no sense to us, that kind in which innocent blood is shed. As the early chapters of Job have shown, and as the Bible elsewhere reveals, Satan is a real being and is the cause, directly or indirectly, of so much suffering. As we discovered in our second exploration of Job, the great controversy template works so well in helping us deal with the reality of evil in our world. Still, it's hard to understand at times why the things that do take place happen. Sometimes, many times actually, things just don't make sense. It's at times like these when things happen that we don't understand, that we need to learn to trust in the goodness of God. We need to learn to trust God even when answers are not readily apparent and when we can see nothing good coming from the evil and suffering around us. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. From the things that you do see, do you trust God about the things that you don't see? From what you have discovered in the book of Job so far, in what sense has Job learned to do just that? How can you learn to do the same? continue exploring. Here are a few thoughts to ponder. This exploration began with Albert Camus, who wrote a lot about his struggle for answers, not just to the question of suffering, but to the question of life's meaning in general, which suffering made only more problematic. As with most atheists, he didn't make much headway. His most famous quote shows how little, quote, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy, end quote. That quotation was from Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus and Other Essays, page 3, published in New York by Vintage Books 
in 1955. For sure, the question of human suffering is not an easy one to answer. The book of Job pulls back a veil and shows us a bigger picture than what we might have seen otherwise. But even when we read it all, the book still leaves many questions unanswered. There is, however, an important difference between those who struggle for answers to the question of suffering without God and those who do so with God. Yes, the problem of pain and suffering becomes more difficult when you believe in the existence of God because of the inevitable problems his existence in the face of evil and pain bring. On the other hand, we have what atheists such as Camus don't have, and that is the prospect of answer and of resolution. There is evidence that Camus, later in life, had wanted to be baptized, but he was soon killed in a car accident. We have the hope that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. Even if someone didn't believe this promise or many of the others in the Bible, that person would have to admit, if nothing else, how much nicer life would be now to have at least that hope as opposed to the prospect of just living here amid our toils and struggles and then dying forever, with it all meaning nothing. Here are a few questions to consider. One argument that people bring up in regard to the question of evil is the idea that, well, yes, there is evil in the world, but there is also good, and the good outweighs the evil. The first question would be, how does one know that the good outweighs the evil? How does one make that comparison? The second question would be, even if true, what good would that idea do for Job or others amid their suffering? German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer used a powerful example to debunk that whole notion of some sort of balance between good and evil in this world now. The pleasure in this world, he wrote, it has been said, outweighs the pain, or at any rate, there is an even balance between the two. If the reader wishes to see shortly whether this statement is true, let him compare the respective feelings of two animals, one of which is engaged in eating the other. How would you respond to the idea that good somehow balances out the evil? ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.